Welcome to the Travel Media Lab podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisuk, an award-winning travel photographer and writer, entrepreneur, community builder, and a firm believer that every one of us can go after the stories we've always wanted to tell with the right support, encouragement, and structure. I'm on a mission to help women's storytellers everywhere break into and thrive in the travel media space. If you're ready to ditch your fears to the side, grow your knowledge and confidence, and publish your travel stories, you're in the right place. Let's go! Sarah Han is an accomplished travel journalist who recently moved from New York to Dubai to become Condé Nast Traveler Middle East's newest editor-in-chief. Sarah knew she wanted to be a journalist since she was an 8-year-old living in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and her career has taken her to incredible places around the world like Bosnia, Namibia, and Estonia, reporting for publications like the New York Times, Travel and Leisure, Bon Appetit, and more. In our conversation, Sarah reflects on her path and how it prepared her for her current role. She also gives savvy advice to aspiring journalists looking to build their portfolio and develop some of the crucial connections that make freelancing a reality. We cover Travel is Better in Color, an initiative Sarah started with several of her peers aimed to improve representation in the travel media space and discuss why you should never take those rejections personally, what makes a good story, and what types of stories Sarah is looking for to assign for Condonast Traveler Middle East at the moment. I really enjoyed our conversation with Sarah, and I hope you do too. And a quick note that yes, we used to be called Genius Women. So if you're wondering how come we're now called Travel Media Lab, check out our last week's episode number 48, where we dig into that. All right, let's get into our conversation with Sarah. Today on the podcast, we have an amazing and talented Sarah Khan, who is a editor-in-chief of Condé Nast Traveler Middle East. And I'm so excited that we found the time to meet today. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And I'm so excited to be here with you today. I'm glad we were able to make this work. Me too. Me too. And you just were telling me just before we started recording how whirlwind of an experience it's been so far for you to move from the States back or not back, but back to the region sort of and start your new life in Dubai. So I'm sure it's been kind of crazy. So I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, no, definitely with with both of our schedules, like as travelers, like it's always crazy to try to find a time, but I'm really glad we're able to make this work. Me too, me too. So I loved your story on Malta called Discovering Malta's Lingering Links to the Arab World. And Mm -hmm. for our listeners, we're going to link uh link to the story in the show notes and you know for me the whole essence of the story was summarized in one line you wrote which said if only stones could talk they would say marhaba and i i love that line so much it was amazing so what do you love about this story you know exactly how it goes when you're out there in the field reporting and somebody says something and you're like that's it that's my lead or that's what i'm closing with like you know you have those moments and they're few and far between but that was definitely one of them when i heard him say that i was like oh oh that's my story right there i know i know i and i know exactly what you're talking about you you just have this like tingling sense right when you hear that line you're like oh yeah that's it so what did you love about the story well i think it was it was one of those unique experiences where you kind of go into something 
or a destination, not knowing much about it, but having this idea of what you're going to find and where it actually lives up to that and more. And so the reason I was interested in that story was I'd heard that Malta had, you know, been in an Arab colony in the past and had, you know, some lingering influences from it and that the influences were most prevalent in the language, which is a hybrid of Arabic and and, uh, Italian. And I think that was what was so interesting when I got there. And I actually got to see that in action. I got to hear the the language and hear how it was actually reminiscent so much of Arabic words that I was familiar with, but then also just see the other more surreptitious ways that the, the culture has remained and actually really able to unpack that. And I think it was just a very rewarding experience where I went into it not knowing much, but having this idea of what I wanted to find. And it just really surpassed my greatest expectations. Yeah, and I, I think you just really described, if I may call it that way, a formula of sorts for really great stories where you have some sort of a direction, but don't have everything laid out or don't have many expectations. You have a direction and a curiosity that you're following and then seeing where that leads. Yeah, and I think that's such a good way to look at it is having that direction and the curiosity because you can't go into anything with a pre-existing, like clear idea of like, this is a story I'm going to tell and that's how it's going to go because obviously when you're on the ground, it's going to be so different. So all you can do is sort of go into it with a question. So in this case, it was like, what lingering effects remain from Malta's medieval era period? And then just kind of letting the people you speak to and, you know, the local voices and perspectives really guide your way to answering those questions. And yeah, exactly that. Yeah. And, you know, related to that, how do you in general find your story ideas? Because I think for both you and I, for for people who travel for work, right, most of the time, we always we always want to make sure that we have story, multiple stories out of every single trip that we take. Mm-hmm. So your story ideas, do they, do they happen naturally to you? Or is there more like a process that you follow before a trip where you're like, okay, I want to write, you know, I want to have five stories about Malta or whatever that is. Uh, I think it varies. So I, I obviously just started this role recently. So now my my mandate is very different. But when I was a freelancer, I had a bit more flexibility because I had, you know, the world was my oyster as far as which types of publications I could place certain ideas in. And so I just, in that role, was able to just sort of let my curiosity guide me. Like, what am I interested in? What do I want to know about? So for instance, I was always curious, um, and a lot of it relates to the news and what's happening in the world. And so there was a point where we were hearing a lot of stories about Islamophobia and things like that in, in Europe. And that just made me really curious about Bosnia because Bosnia is a Muslim country where like they're indigenous Muslims who've been there for hundreds of years, but it's part of Europe and the heart of Europe. And um, so I was just like, well, you know, we keep hearing about like Muslims are not from here, but what's it like in a country where Muslims are from there and have historically been from there? And I think that was kind of what I did a lot of just as a freelancer. I was like, what am I interested in? What am I curious about? What do I want to know about? And then after that, you know, like the, the next step would be in who would be interested in this story. In that case, the New York Times was interested in that story. Um, now, obviously, my mandate is a little different because I am the editor-in-chief of Kanye Traveler Middle East, which obviously services this part of the world, the Middle East, the GCC, and, you know, broader environments around here. And so, and then the diaspora as well. So that's why now I try to, obviously, there's a mix of like newsy things that are relevant, things happening in the region. But I also, where possible, try to look at the world through a lens that might be of interest to this part of the world where it should broadly be interesting. I would think anyone who's interested in Europe would be fascinated by some of the um, unexpected cultural exchanges that happened in Malta. 
but it's, you know, it's an Arab legacy in Europe that you don't really think about that much that, um, you know, where it's the only Semitic language in the European Union. And that it's, you know, when you, if you speak Arabic, and you speak a Romance language, you actually will understand a lot of Maltese. Um, so I think that's yeah. where now I sort of try to think of like more my readership first, and what would be in service to them, and then kind of go from there. So it's kind of an interesting shift in how I approach my storytelling now. Yeah, for sure. And actually related to that, I was curious. So, you know, like we mentioned, you recently became an editor in chief. Again, congratulations, by the way, it's an incredible achievement. And before that, you were a freelancer for, I believe, eight years or so. So how do you think your, your time as a freelancer in travel media has prepared you for this next stage in your, in your career? Um, well, I think it's just helped me really get a lot of different insight into how different publications work and what works and what doesn't and what I like about editors and what I don't like about editors and kind of try to be the best editor I can be. Uh, unfortunately, it's still a work in progress because I'm still very overwhelmed by a lot of it. So I can't say I'm as responsive to emails as I'm hoping to become based on my own experience on the other side of the, the computer. Oh my God, I love that because that's a, such a big gripe for us, right? I know. Trust me, I was leading the charge and talking about it. And I hate that like I have not been as on top of my inbox as I want to, but I'm trying. Um, I think the other thing that's been an interesting shift for me that I'm like, you know, diversity and travel writing has been a very important passion of mine, but I am one human who has one particular lens on the world. So what's exciting for me now is as an editor, I can actually champion that vision and like, you know, really try my best to bring in a broader range of writers, you know, while before I just sort of was able to, and it was great. I loved every minute of being a freelancer. Well, except for the parts where editors weren't replying to my emails, but you know, like there was a lot I loved about freelancing. But I was also one of the things that was kind of cool about it is I just got to write the stories that I wanted to write at the end of the day. Obviously, it's not as simple and, and romanticized as a bit, but you know, you get to kind of focus on things you want to do. Whereas here, I get to find ideas that excite me that I'm curious about and then try to think of who the right writer might be for that or like, you know, or just finding voices that I like and just sending cold emails like, hey, I like that story you did, and, you know, inviting them to pitch. Um, so I think that's something, you know, as a writer, I saw this void and this need of like, you know, a broader range of voices. And, and there's only so much I could do and so many people I could recommend, I wasn't empowered to actually make changes. And so I feel like that's something I'm hoping to do a lot more of when I'm on this side of it, because of a need I saw as a freelancer. Oh, I love that so much, Sarah, because it, it's been sort of my experience too that, and, and you know, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your take on it, that the travel media industry in general is such an insular space that you know if you if you're not already part of that or somehow connected or plugged in if you don't know the right people if you're not in that space then it's so hard for many of us to break into it um and i know you and and your co-founders have started travel is better in color which is an amazing platform that features all the different voices in the industry but i'm curious what would you say to someone who is sort of looking from the outside looking into that and they have aspirations, but then also they're like, I don't know anybody in this industry. What do I do? You know? Yeah. Well, I think first, you know, obviously it's, it's been very problematic for a long time, but I also try to have a bit of empathy for the editors where, Yes, it's been a big blind spot. They shouldn't that that should not be okay. And it's, it's I'm glad that people are waking up to it. But also, they it's easy for anyone to fall into a comfort zone, right? Like when you work with one or two writers, you know, they're good and reliable, as opposed to going out of your way to seek out new voices. And, and you don't know what you're going to get necessarily. We're all doing multiple jobs now, you know, in publishing. 
so, you know, I can see why it's easy to kind of fall into that familiar zone of writers and that little, you know, limited pool and network that you've grown over time. So I think, and but yes, at the same time, it's incredibly intimidating if you're an outsider. So I think now is probably a better time than most for writers looking to break in who might consider themselves outsiders or not have the right network or the right contacts, because I think editors have been waking up to their blind spots and realizing that they really do need to do better. And that's part of where something like Travel is Better in Color comes in, where we have been, um, and you know, I mean, it's, we all have full-time other jobs, so there's only so much we can do, but it was sort of our way of showing other editors and a lot of, you know, top editors do follow that platform and showing them there are really talented, diverse writers, photographers, publicists, and people broadly in the travel industry who've been doing their thing and are very accomplished and very well known and doing it in English language mediums around or English language publications around the world for a long time. So just sort of making it a little bit more accessible where here are a bunch, just go to our Instagram, you'll see little bios, you'll get to know who's where, what they're doing, who they've written for. So obviously, that's for people who are somewhat more established, because they've been published in places, we're just sort of highlighting some of their work. Um, but I think even so I think, you know, and editors are very receptive to like discovering new writers. So it's kind of like a good way of making it easier for them in a bit and making their job easy. For people who are newer and like on the earlier end of the spectrum, I think editors are also just more open to hearing ideas from different people that are new than they might have been five, 10 years ago. But especially with COVID and all the travel restrictions that are constantly changing, this is a really good time for uh, writers who are based in different countries and regions that aren't New York or London around the world that are able to potentially, you know, like places that say previously in the glory days of travel writing, an editor might have just helicoptered in their favorite writer to go to, you know, Johannesburg and do something. Now, with all the, you know, unfortunate changing restrictions, they're more likely to commission somebody already based in Johannesburg, which is probably in many cases, the best person to tell that story. So I think if you are somebody who's either starting out or doesn't have contacts in, you know, some of the top publications, but you're based in an unusual destination for them, not to say there's anything unusual or exotic about the destination, because, you know, travelers, we hate the word exotic and, and what that implies, but more just like if it's a place that's not easily accessible to or commonly on the radar of a travel editor sitting in New York, um, this is probably your best chance to actually get their attention. I love that. I, I, I really love that, Sarah. And just to point this out to our listeners, first of all, Kadiha Farah, who we had on the podcast several times now, she's a Kenya-based photojournalist. Yeah, yeah I've seen her. I her. You've seen her, yeah. She she talked about that too that you know in the pandemic she she's gotten so much more work than she ever did before exactly for that reason that you just mentioned but I want to I want to point out to our listeners what Sarah just said is that editors are open to new ideas new voices and a lot of times I see that women who are starting out in this industry have so many doubts about you know whether they have something legitimate to say when they're first pitching somebody and so I just wanted to reinforce this idea that editors are actually open to new ideas and new voices and you know if you if you're watching this as a video later on um, on YouTube Sarah is you know an incredibly approachable and accessible and amazing human she's not scary she doesn't bite so they're sorry like that you know uh, they're humans just like us and we just all are just all we really want is a good story. And if you have a good story, tell it. And and I mean, obviously, that simplifies it a lot. There's a lot more that goes into it. But I think the other important thing is if you are new, or you're, you know, just getting the courage to pitch somebody cold pitch somebody you haven't worked with before, and you don't hear back, or you don't get an immediate yes, is you cannot take it personally It is not a testament to you or your tra- talent or your lack thereof or anything. It is literally 
It could be as simple as you just Zanzibar story and they just did a 10 page feature on Zanzibar. So they're not going to revisit it. And then maybe they just didn't get a chance to reply to your email because again, email inboxes are always a nightmare. Um, so I think that's the other thing you just you have to have a bit of a thick skin, especially if you're a freelancer, and you just can't sell yourself short and tell yourself that, oh, this person didn't reply, my career is over, I have no, you know, I must, I must be terrible at it. And I say this as somebody who did that throughout my freelance career, even when I was getting the best bylines of my life, like there's a lot of self doubt that goes into this. Even when I was interviewing for this role, I was just kind of like, what am I doing? And I'm just like, wait, I've, I've earned this, but for whatever reason, I think a lot of us get intimidated and, and talk ourselves out of things. So when it comes to pitching new editors, you should always go out there. All it takes is one great pitch to catch someone's eye. And if it doesn't, pitch it somewhere else. Somebody will be interested. Oh, I love that, Sarah. I love that. That's exactly what I talk about all the time on this podcast. Exactly that, right? Don't, don't interpret all the rejections or lack of responses as a personal judgment on you, your work, your worth, worth of your work, any of that. Just you have to grow really thick skin in this career. Yeah. And I mean, I'll say that as, you know, as somebody that I think was when I was freelancing, I think I was considered fairly prolific and, and rather successful as far as freelancing goes. And I'm very proud of the career I had, but I had so many people that wouldn't reply or, you know, editors I've worked with many times and had good relationships with. And it's just, you always, it, the instinct is to take it personally. I often took it personally, but like literally it happens to everyone. Like even the people you're seeing that are being published everywhere you want to be published, even people who are starting out, like it's just, it's just the way it is. It's not great. And that's why I said my goal is to be a more responsive editor, even if I am turning someone down, which again, still a work in progress. But yeah, I think it's just, you need to know that it's not you and you should always try somewhere else until, because you don't know what the, the, the secret formula is for some of these magazines and publications and what really they're looking for at any given time. So Yes. And, and actually, on that point, I think one of the hopeful signs that I see in the industry when it comes to opening up those insulated uh, spaces is that I was shocked to see this year how many publications for the first time ever put their pitching guidelines online. Where, you know, before it was like you, you had no idea what Afar was looking for, for example, if, unless you had a foot in the door already. Condé Nast uh, US as well just recently put their up and it's like, wow, that's great. You know, now you sort of have the guidelines. We used to feel like getting an editor's email address was a state secret. Like you had to learn all these like complicated ways to Google things and find it. And now they're literally like, here are the pitches. Here's the right editor for that section. I mean, it's amazing. It's, there's a, just, it's a whole new world right now, I think, and for, for people who are trying to get their foot in the door. That wasn't mm -hmm. even possible a few years ago. Definitely, definitely. So actually, I think I've, I've read somewhere that you knew that you wanted to be a journalist since you were eight years old. And I think you're one of the first guests that we had on the podcast that had so much clarity so early on, you know. So talk to us a little bit about that. And, and specifically, if, if the idea that the eight-year-old Sarah had about what journalism is and what this career could be did it unfold in the way that she imagined or, or not? I think it unfolded better, to be honest. I don't think I, eight-year-old Sarah had no idea what possibilities the world held. And I think, I mean, obviously in some ways worse because the media industry has definitely changed a lot since I was eight years old. Yeah, so I, I grew up in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And when I was growing up, my mother was a journalist. And so she was a freelance writer, did a lot of lifestyle and travel writing, actually, for Arab News, Saudi Gazette, the in-flight magazine for Saudi Airlines. And my dad worked at Saudi Airlines. And so I had this combination of travel and writing in my life from a very young age. And that's why I knew what journalism was, because of my mom. So I think I had just seen her example. And that's all I kind of knew. And I knew I loved telling stories. And I think 
as I grew older and I went to journalism school, initially my vision was actually, when I was looking at it more seriously, was something more hard news related. I think just that seemed more serious, if you will. Um, so I just kind of thought I'd try to do something like that. But then when I took a features editing class in J school, that's when I realized I really like being on features and lifestyle. And even then it was a more natural progression. Like if you think about it, the fact that I grew up in this region, my dad worked for an airline in this region. My mom was a journalist in this region doing travel and lifestyle writing. And then I grew up traveling and to be back in the Middle East as editor-in-chief of Condé Nast Travel Middle East, that really feels like perfect synergy. But for me, like I still started, I, I worked in New York at Lifestyle Magazines and I went into a travel magazine at Travel and Leisure on staff for a few years. And then I moved to South Africa. I went freelance. So it was this very organic progression towards where I am today and really kind of building my personal brand, if you will, in different regions and different types of coverage. And so it's just kind of interesting how my life has sort of led me back to this point. Like it does feel like very much full circle moment. And um, it's just a really exciting time to be back here. So I think, yeah, I, I don't think eight-year-old Sara really knew what she was getting into when she decided she wanted to be a journalist, but I think she would be very excited if she were able to look at what I'm doing now. Um, and I actually was just in Jeddah yesterday um, to cover some of the new developments happening there. So I think that was particularly exciting to be like back in the city where it all started for me and just be able to chronicle that and report on that, I think is really, it just felt very like goosebumpy for me. Definitely. I can imagine. So you meant, you just mentioned that you, you went free, uh, freelance after working some time in the magazines and you did that while you also moved to another country. That must have been like a double, doubly what, uh, maybe scary is not the right word, but you're, you're changing countries and you're going freelance. How was that experience like? So that honestly, whenever anybody asks me for advice for freelance travel writing, I actually say if you have the, ability, the privilege, the chance, the opportunity to move overseas to somewhere like less covered by US and UK publications, do it because that was actually a huge turning point for me professionally. Like I obviously had been working as a journalist for a few years. I'd worked in travel magazines. I'd built some, you know, a bit of a portfolio and all that, but I was still fairly like junior to mid-level at that point. Um, but moving to South Africa and going freelance, I gave myself a year to see how it would go. And then if I needed to, I'd look for something more full-time. But within a year, I was writing for all my dream publications. And that was because I mean, and I know in some ways I had a leg up because I'd worked in New York media before, but honestly, most of my pitches that landed in that first year were through cold pitching where I just reach out to a new editor who'd never heard of me and be like, hi, I'm, I'm based in Cape Town. I have XYZ ideas. And so kind of like what I was saying earlier, where like, if you're somewhere unique and like not that often covered by these editors there you have a leg up already you know and so I living in Cape Town had the ability to really tap into nuanced story ideas that were happening on the ground there and I started by focusing on Cape Town then kind of Southern Africa and then when I had the relationships with the editors I'd be like all right well I want to go to Estonia or like you know like I just kind of pitch all over the world um, so I think it was a great foot in the door for me like kind of establishing myself with my regional expertise and then building those relationships and taking them beyond. So even when I moved back from South Africa, I wasn't just the South Africa girl. I actually had a blog back then called the South African. Get it? Yes. Yes. So, so yeah, so like I, but I was kind of worried when I moved back to New York, like what if I'm just a South African, can I actually transition this? But I think that's when I, I built those relationships with those initial pitches. And then I just kind of transitioned to other coverage. So Long story short, if you have the opportunity to live somewhere unique, and again, I say that just in reference to what editors might be looking for or have access to, um, because it's obviously much more expensive for them to send a writer to Cape Town than it is to have somebody who's got on the ground intel. 
And my intel as someone based in Cape Town was obviously much better than someone sitting in New York Googling frantically before their trip, right? So, so yeah, for me, that was honestly, I feel like that experience really helped me leapfrog ahead a lot as a freelancer so that I really kind of, if I was in New York and fighting for the same stories as all the other freelance writers in New York, I don't think I would have had anywhere near as much success as I did in that stage of my career. Yeah, that no, that makes a lot of sense. And that's that's great advice. Actually, I haven't heard it presented in that lens before. Or if you don't have an ability to to move somewhere, let's say, again, exciting in, in quotation marks, looking at how you can uh, deliver expertise in your local area, too, and, and perhaps find an interesting niche or, or a uh, crossover between different verticals. Maybe it's uh, travel and design. Maybe it's travel and art or whatever you have. But sort of developing that. Ex- Basically, what I'm trying to say is you don't always have to travel places to, to be able to do travel writing, right? But, you know, on, on that note, we both know that this career is a super aspirational one. But I wonder, what would you say is some of the most misunderstood parts of being in this industry as a freelancer or as an editor? Um, I think there's this idea that we're just always on holiday. And I think, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that to complain about it. I get why it seems like that, especially on Instagram. And it is a privilege. It's amazing that I get to do all these wonderful, unique things for work. But I think people don't, because they're just seeing, you know, the nice pictures and stuff online, they're not seeing all the work that goes into it. So when I was in Malta writing that story, I also was on my phone nonstop dealing with emails from work because I mean, I, I still have a job. It's not like I was, you know, just relaxing. Even when I was freelance, I was I would sort of block out my time to take those trips. But there's still always, you know, random admin and you're invoicing for this story, you're dealing with edits on that story. So you're always doing other things. You're not just on vacation, you're actually working. But then all the prep that goes into planning a trip, I don't think people realize like I have pages and pages of notes. And I have all these interviews lined up before. And I try to like, plan for spontaneity where I can like leave some windows to discover things. But there's also a lot of it is pre-planned and pre like not even pre-planned in a bad way. Just like I, I'm like, okay, this is, you know, if I want to do this story on like the Arab legacy in Malta, I need to talk to experts. I can't just go and like, you know, just try to hope that I stumble onto someone who happens to know everything. So I reached out to professors in Malta beforehand. And, you know, like I, I scheduled an interview with a fashion designer that was doing some research into a garment that was potentially a legacy from the era. So like you plan a bunch of things in advance, then you're constantly on the go doing those things that you plan. But then you also for me, I feel like it's you really want to do justice to destination, especially when it's a place that you are not from. You don't want to try to presume that you're telling the whole story in one article. So I'm always nervous about like, what if I miss something big? Like what? And you will. I mean, you can't expect to tell an entire like this isn't the Lonely Planet. You're not writing an entire guidebook to a place. You're only doing one lens. But I'm always like, what if I miss some major moments? I'm constantly stressed about making sure I talk to as many people as possible and get as much context and nuance as possible while I'm on the ground. And then there's often a lot more research that goes on after. Like say I'm on the ground, I'm interviewing someone and they mention an author or a book and I don't have time to connect with the author there. I'll go back and do some Zoom interviews after. I'll go buy that book and read the book after. And then you still have to write the story. It's not like you just put a few Instagram posts and, and then call it a day, right? You still have to actually write it and go through the edit. So it's, it's much longer than just what it looks like, I guess, on social media. And again, not to complain, this is there's much worse ways to make money. So this is, you know, it's a privilege and an honor to have a role like this. But I think it's just people assume like, oh, you're I, I wish I could be on vacation all the time is a comment I get. And I'm like, yeah, I do too, actually. <laughs> that sounds really nice. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with you. That's also one of the biggest misconceptions that I often hear from people that, you know, you have the most fabulous job, you're always on vacation. Well, there's quite a lot that goes uh, that goes into it, for sure. Uh, but I think what unites, I think, a lot of people I meet in this industry is that we, we all have this passion for these ideas, for these stories, for, for the act of traveling itself, for the act of discovering. And so I think that helps us also, because it's, it's not the easiest job in the world, too, by the way, right? When you travel all the time, when you have all these things going on and all this process that you just laid out, it can be exhausting, actually. But I think it's our passion is what sort of keeps us going. Yeah, you don't get to sleep much when you're doing this kind of work. Definitely. So wait, actually, can we talk a little bit about Estonia? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You live there, right? Or you're... I, I grew up there. Yeah, that's what I thought. I did remember that. Yeah. That's amazing. I think you did a road trip there uh, through the Baltic country. Yeah. So I went and I, uh, I, the main reason I went is I really wanted to go to Muhu Island, Padaste Manor. I read about that years ago somewhere. And it's just one of those, I think when you work and travel, there's certain places that just get under your skin and you just want to go to. So that was one of the main reasons I wanted to go. And then... I love Tallinn and I went to, I can't remember, there's a Parnu on the coast, I think, something like that. And yeah, it, just, it was such a cool country. And then the whole Baltic region was just a revelation. I really enjoyed that whole road trip through, started in Estonia, went through Latvia, ended in Lithuania. And I had some of the best food of my travels there. Um, it was just, yeah, it was, it was a really cool trip. And I think, not that you asked this, but as far as like other types of advice I have for travelers is I, I, it's great when you can get sent somewhere on assignment. That's obviously the best, but sometimes it's also good to just take your own trips and then try to sell as many stories as you can. So that is an example of one time I did that where I pitched the, the Estonia story and that's what I was going for. But then I also on my own dime did the rest of the road trip, but I also pitched so many stories along the way, like a couple of different Latvia angles, Lithuania angle. And so that just, so even though like whatever costs I might've incurred with the road trip and with, you know, that wasn't on the expense budget for the, the primary story, I still made, you know, way more than that in the long run. So sometimes it's like a worth worthwhile investment to just kind of strategically think about places you can go that you don't mind putting your own expenses toward that might pay off like tenfold down the line. Definitely. And and some and also recognizing that sometimes like for example, there are some destinations that I'm still pitching years after after you go. Obviously those are more like evergreen stories and not something that's, you know, uh news driven. But sometimes some of the trips and places that you do, they they keep giving back uh, for, for a long time. That's how I made my way through the pandemic was a lot of the stories that were from my previous trips that I never had the bandwidth to pitch or write about after I filed the primary story from that trip. So I spent a lot of time in my notebook archives and just looking for other angles and then, you know, pitching other things. So that's a lot of what I did during 2020. Yeah, that makes sense. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Trouble is Better in Color and your platform. And particularly now that we're sort of a year and a half from the, let's say, the, the, the great awakening of 2020, how do you feel about how the industry is looking now, right? Because a lot of people, a lot of publications did a lot of things back then. But well, I mean, a, a lot of performative things, at least, or at least, you know, and, and I think the question now is, did any of it stick? Or how are you feeling about how the industry is looking at uh, like now? Look, it's, it's a challenging thing to wake up overnight and realize how problematic you've been and to try to fix it. Obviously, it's going to take time. I think Performative is the right word. A lot of it was performative. Um, but I do think that I've seen writers 
become much more um, prolific in this time because editors have been making more of an effort to really reach out. And so I feel I've seen the journeys of some writers really progress over the last year and a half. So that's been exciting to watch. But I think in some ways, it feels like perhaps the editors are again, falling into that little bubble of like, okay, they've discovered a few new writers. And now they're just going to keep working with them over and over. So I think it, it still needs to be an ongoing process that I don't know that everyone is really doing to the best of their ability. But hey, leaps and bounds ahead of where things were, you know, two years ago. So it's a start. But I think the only time and I think we actually talked about this once on um, on that clubhouse we did together. But mm-hmm. the real change is when the mass has changed, because yes, it's great to bring in diverse writers, and you have to and it's important. But they're not necessarily the ones shaping the vision and the direction of the magazine. You know, it's the people that are in the editorial meetings that get to like, say, yay or nay to different ideas. And who are the people writing those stories? And I think, you know, I haven't seen that really change much. And that, that again, is something that's going to take a while because obviously publications, you know, it's, it's not like you could just be like, all right, we're going to hire seven new people this month. But I think that only when we see that change dramatically is when we're really going to see meaningful, lasting change because you need to, it can't just be tokenism. It can't just be like you have one POC on the mass of the masthead who is going to be the one that like explains every single thing or tells you why every choice is right or wrong. You know, like you need to have people from a whole host of different backgrounds that are really reflective of the readers today and the people that are traveling today. And I think that is what I would really like to see more. I've seen definitely like, you know, some good positive steps in the right direction as far as who's being commissioned, the kinds of stories that are being done. I just want to see that momentum continue. And I wanted to see it translate into actual like long-term staff changes too, as far as like really diversifying there. Yeah. And your current assignment is one such step in that direction as well, right? Which is super exciting. Yeah. And that's why, like, I mean, I know I have my own limitations from being out here and covering this part of the world and and other things. But yeah, like whatever I can do to really help bring different voices into my magazine, whatever limited page count I have, I'm happy to do it. And I hope to see that things changing everywhere. Mm -hmm. So speaking of that, what kinds of stories does Sarah Khan, editor in chief of Canada's Traveler Middle East, uh, looks for? Oh, that is a great question. I'm still every day trying to figure that out um, because there's just so much to tell. It's such a dynamic part of the world and we only have a bi-monthly magazine to tell it. So I feel like it's been, it's felt a little bit limiting in that sense where I feel like, oh my God, I want to commission everyone, everything. But I think the things that stand out to me are just really strong local coverage of this region. So, you know, stuff that's, and we know the Bai really well because we're based in the Bai and in the UAE, but I want to hear more from Oman. I want to hear more from Jordan. I want to hear more from Egypt, um, Tunisia. So I just really thoughtful, nuanced stories like the kinds of stories I like to write as a freelancer. I want to empower other people to write for me from, you know, this entire region and just, you know, like focusing on the arts and the design and like, you know, just entrepreneurship and like, you know, there's so much happening. It's such a dynamic, really exciting time to be in this part of the world. And I really want to showcase that as best as I can. And then I'm also trying to shape our international coverage where I really take into account what stories might be of interest to readers who are, you know, Middle Eastern or diaspora backgrounds, or what, like, what would be of service to them. So I want to, that's part of why I did the Malta story, because I think that's broadly an interesting angle, and I hope other people like it too. But I think, like I, I was saying earlier, like, that's something that is a legacy of this part of the world over there. And I think that's, so I want to do a bit more of that kind of, not like that every story needs to have that angle, but I'd love to kind of look through the world through that, like filtering the rest of the world through that lens as well, where those stories are relevant, because there are some really interesting, you know, legacies around the world that I think would be really fun to spotlight. But then also just generally great travel stories and trends. So send me everything, guys. <laughs> Sarah is open to pitches, you guys. So there you go. 
there are two things that sort of stood out for me when you were talking just now. One is is actually a great idea when you're approaching a new editor that you wanna you wanna pitch with something. Look at their work if if it's available online. Look at the kinds of stories they've created in the past, and that's a great indication of you know what kind of stories they like to see as well. And the other thing was that I feel that excitement that you're talking about in the region as well. Like the past several years that I've been coming to Jordan. That's what I keep seeing. There's so much creative energy here, in, you know, particularly in Amman. And it's so exciting that, and, and I feel like a lot of audiences outside of the region have no idea or, you know, they have a very different idea of what some of these cities in the Middle, Middle East look like. And that's partially why we're here, right? We're partially here to change some of those narratives as well. So that's, that's really exciting. And I think that is honestly one of the main things that drew me to this opportunity is just this part of the world has been so misunderstood understood and underserved for so long that like, yes, I want to tell stories that first and foremost are in service to this readership. But I also want to show these different nuanced sides of this part of the world. And this is a massive part of the world. It's everywhere from, you know, the GCC to North um, to the Levant to North Africa. And, um, you know, to be able to tell these stories in a global way that other people will also kind of see some of the change and the, the interesting things coming out of here. Definitely. Oh, Sarah, I, I wish we could keep talking with you because it's, it's just been so fun. And there's a lot of things that we haven't touched on in this conversation. But I think maybe we will, we will see if, if you have some more time later on in the year, maybe we'll do like a follow up conversation with you as well, if you're open to it. But I want to close this particular conversation with a question that I always close with. And it's sort of a big one. But how would you begin to answer What does it mean to be a woman who is stepping into her brilliance today? That is really good and really big question. I think it's just about taking up space in the world and like showing who you are in all your different multitudes and really just not being afraid to make sure you're heard and make sure your perspective is out there and make sure everything that you offer to the world is visible and known. And it's it's hard to do. It sounds really easy, right? Just be yourself and be out there. But I think we're often conditioned to not really think we can take up space in this way. And I think that's what's really exciting. It's kind of, and again, to bring it back to this region, seeing some of those changes here and how women are really kind of embracing their brilliance in different ways. And um, I think it's just about being out there, being loud and proud and sharing your point of view, because your point of view is very unique and interesting and fascinating. And you should not talk yourself out of sharing that with the world. Oh, I love that. I love that, Sarah. I love that. Did you listen to all of our podcast episodes or something? Because that's exactly what I talk about on every, nearly every episode is that realizing really deeply how unique your perspective is because of your experiences, because of your background, because all of the things that you sort of bring to the table, like there's no one else out there with that unique perspective. And that to me is a door through which you step into the brilliance that you already have is realizing that unique voice that you have. So I, I, I love that. That's that's a beautiful way. No, but I think it's also just we all have that voice, but I think we all don't feel empowered to share it because we talk ourselves out of, you know, thinking that what we have to say is unique or important. So I think that's really what it is. It's just when you get to a point where you realize I should be out there more doing whatever it is that you do, whether, you know, what, yeah, no matter what, mani- how it manifests, as long as you're out there. Definitely. And and you don't know who 
is going to see that what you do and be inspired by that. Like, I mean, you know, talk about representation, talk about all the role models of all these amazing women that we see on our paths and how we get impacted and inspired by them. It's so important, not just for you yourself, but also for all the other women out there who see that as well, right? So that's, uh, I couldn't agree more. Ah, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I know you, uh, I know we have a hard stop, so we're we're, going to wrap up now, but I would really love to invite you to the podcast again and maybe expand on some of the themes uh, that we've had here. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. This was such a great conversation. So thank you, Yulia. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation we had with Sarah. And if so, please consider leaving us a review so that more listeners could find our show. I can't stress how important it is for us to get reviews of our podcast. It really helps us to get in front of more people who might enjoy our show. So if you've been inspired by something you heard today in our conversation with Sarah or in any other episodes of our show, please consider leaving us your review. That's one of the best ways you can support us. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week for a conversation with Ashley Halligan, founder of Pilgrim Magazine.